Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wander in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Hamahana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, in going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body the body of Buddha. seventh day of our winter seven-day session, uh, 6th of August 2021. And we're going to take up a, a story from The Hidden Lamp, stories from 25 centuries of awakened women, uh, edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. And um, the story we're going to look at um, is entitled You uses her full strength and um, it comes from 12th century China and I'll just read the story itself and um, then uh, we'll have a look at some of the um, things in it that may be unfamiliar before we actually get down to um, what it is saying. The laywoman, Yu Daopo, made doughnuts for a living. She also studied Chan, Chinese Zen, with Master Lang Yue Huijue, who told her to contemplate Linji's phrase, the true person of no rank. 
One day, she and her husband were delivering donuts, and as they walked through the street, they met a beggar who was singing Happiness in the Lotus Land. Yu was suddenly enlightened, and she threw the tray of donuts to the ground. Her husband scolded her, Have you gone crazy? Yu slapped him, saying, This is not a realm you understand. She then went to see Lang Ye, who immediately verified her awakening. One day after this, Lang, Lang Ye asked the assembly, Which one is the true person of no rank? Yu shouted out this verse. There is a true person of no rank who has six arms and three heads. When she uses her full strength to cut, Mount Hua is pit, spit in two. Her strength is like the ever-flowing water, not caring about the coming of spring. Okay, so that's our, that's our story. Let's just have a look at our cast of characters here and some other things. So first of all, we have we have the um, Yu Daopo, laywoman, donut seller. Um, there's a little bit about her. Um, she was the only Dharma heir of uh, Langye uh, Yongchi, and apparently remained a laywoman. She was awakened on hearing the teaching of the true person of no rank. After her powerful encounter with the master and abbot Yuan Wu, she, he recognized her accomplishment and she was sought out by many monks. Um, Yuan Wu doesn't appear in our story, but um, he's uh, n known in Zen circles uh, for his um, compiling of the comments on the uh, Blue Cliff Record. He was the, the, the second commenter. Uh, his, um, his Japanese name is Engo. And he, he was also uh, known for uh, teaching women, which was very unusual at the time. So he, she had a later encounter with him, but this, this just relates to her her own, her, oh, with her own teacher, um, who we'll hear a little bit about. There's not, there's not all that much on him. Lang Ye Hui Jue's dates are nine eighty to ten fifty, and he was a disciple of Funyang in the Linji lineage. Linji, of course, is um, the, the Chinese uh, name uh, and equivalent to Rinzai. The um, author of the, the, the True Person of No Rank, her, her koan, um, is Linji himself, Linji Yishuan, um, died in 867. So um, many, many centuries between 
the formulation of this particular koan and the incident that we're, we're um, seeing here. Linji, um, the founder of his school, was a student of, of Huang Bo, Si Yun. And um, he was known for his extremely vigorous, abrupt teaching style, which often used shouts and blows. Then there's some other things happening in here. There's, um, later on they meet the, a beggar who is singing Happiness in the Lotus Land. Um, it seems to be maybe a kind of a popular song that um, had a Dharma theme to it. It's given by the title Happiness in the Lotus Land. Um, we, I couldn't find anything else out about this. Uh, but it reminded me of, of something we experienced when we went to China in 2001. Um, we travelled to um, Wu Taishan, five mountains, very that have, appears in some koans. Um, it's a great centre of, of uh, Buddhist temples. There used to be hundreds of them. Now there are probably uh, at least scores of them. Um, but that that year in 2001, there was there was a, a pop song that was being played, which was about the Pure Land. We didn't actually ever get exactly what what the what it was saying, but it was we were hearing it wherever we went, being played in shops and restaurants and um, and so forth. So it seemed like there was something something in the song that 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 triggered. Uh, some some teaching maybe that triggered um, Yu Daopo's um, awakening. We'll come come back to this in a few minutes. Also in her verse, um, Yu. Uh, refers to cutting Mount Hua into two. Um, Mount Hua or Hua Shan in Chinese uh, is located in Shanxi province and um, it's considered one of China's five great mountains. So equivalent to our um, Tongariro or Ruapehu perhaps. This massive mountain was particularly important to Taoists and was associated with immortality. Okay, so let's, let's take a closer look now at this story. So um, <clears throat> one day you and her husband were out uh, delivering pancakes 
oh, sorry, donuts. Pancakes would be good too. Um, as they and they as they walked through the street, they heard this beggar singing, "Happiness in the Lotus Land," and Yu was suddenly enlightened, and she threw the tray of donuts to the ground. So, um, contrary to what Russell Williams might think, you can be enlightened by words. Probably the most well-known incidence of this in in uh, Zen is the sixth ancestor, who was a, um, a firewood, firewood seller at the time, and he was going from house to house uh, selling his bundles of firewood to support him and his mother. And uh, he heard a fragment of the Diamond Sutra, arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. And this, this triggered his first awakening experience. Or there's a case of the great Korean master, Chinul, who um, one of his awakenings came from reading uh, a written word, a sutra. And it all depends on the readiness of the hearer or the reader. We, we can... Um, we can guess that those those do donuts, um, a lot of work will have gone into them. They probably had to get up very early to start the fire, to boil oil and make the donuts and and uh, get out on the street early enough to get them to people in time for their maybe their breakfasts or their lunches. So it wasn't surprising that the Yu's um, uh, husband might be alarmed at what she had done. And of course, they probably weren't um, very rich if they were selling these donuts. They probably were um, putting the, the next meal on the table, the, the, the takings from the donuts. So he's every right to say, have you gone crazy? What are you doing? And in a sense, in a sense, you has gone a little crazy. We we see this in her responses. The, it's the madness of of ordinary conventional ways of doing doing things and thinking about things have been chucked out. Her her shouting also her verse. Um, Certainly, in in her and her slapping of her husband, you have to understand that in in ancient China, um, women were um, expected to in their youth obey their fathers, and then um, in adulthood, um, their husbands, and then when they got old, their sons. So, this to to slap one's one's husband would have been. Uh, very much frowned on. This, um, this, the, the quality of her responses suggests she's a little bit intoxicated by her, her sudden insight into the true person of no rank. And certainly she's not concerned about what people might think when she does these, these crazy things. 
but also we could say that she at some point will have to to shed this kind of uh, what what's sometimes called the Zen stink. This this um, sort of crazy wisdom that uh, she's demonstrating here. She uh, goes to to see her teacher, who um, examines her, and and confirms that that she's had an insight. And then, sometime later, we're told there's an assembly. All all the the people of the the monastery, um, the students of of Langye's have are there. And he he asks this question, which one is the true person of no rag? Uh, this may be a sort of a staged event where so that she gets a chance to to um, demonstrate her understanding before the assembly. They can um, get to appreciate it. And and this is what she says. There is a true person, oh, before I go into that, um, just the, the origin of this true person of no rank question. Um, as we said before, it's it's comes from Master Rinzai. It's one of his, the, probably the most, the most well-known of um, his uh, statements uh, in, among many fine teachings. And... Um, he, he, this is how he framed the original question when he asked it of his, his assembly back in the um, ninth century. The master ascended the hall and said, Here is this lump, here in this lump of red flesh, there is a true person of no rank constantly going in and out the gates of your face. If there are any of you who don't know this for a fact, then look, look. He just repeat it. Here in this lump of red flesh, there is a true person of no rank constantly going in and out the gates of your face. If there are any of you who don't know this for a fact, then look, look. What are the gates of the face? Sometimes in... Buddhism, our senses are referred to as the sense gates, and and our face has eyes, ears, nose, and a mouth. So, so four out of the six senses are concentrated in our faces. No wonder faces are so um, examined and contain so much information and receive so much information constantly going in and out the gates of your face is this true person of no rank who is this true person a true person of no rank
rank is, is a big thing, was a big thing in China um, for, for centuries and centuries in this, in this Confucian culture. Um, public service exams were offered to, to males um, and the, the, your results in the exam would, would um, shape what level of the public sector, the public service, you were allowed to um, work in. And there would be special robes that were different colours for the different ranks of public servant. And this, this was even found in the monasteries. Um, there's a really great book published around the 1950s, which is about uh, Chinese monasticism prior to um, the coming of the communists. And it's, fast, it's a fascinating um, read if you've been in, in any kind of Zen training because there are so many resonances and differences too. Um, but it explains, there's one chapter in which it explains the, the ranking system of, of monasteries which um, determined where you sat in the zendo and what, what tasks you were given and so forth. So, so rank figured a lot in people's lives. So who is the true person of no rank? In uh, Yu's response, she says, there is a true person of no rank who has six arms and three heads. We could read into the numbers here and, and, and see them as symbolic of different types of teachings, but probably what's more likely is that there, there may have been a figure in this hall where this, this um, exchange was happening and it could have been a Kanon figure with multiple arms and, and heads. But she's really, she's, she's uh, talking about this, this true person of no rank and, and, and herself at the same time. When she uses her full strength to cut, Mount Hua is split in two. This great mountain it uses her full strength to cut. Again, we just had perhaps some reference to Kanon, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and now maybe to Manjushri, whose sword cuts away delusion, and who we have on our altar here. Her strength is like the ever-flowing water, not caring about the coming of spring. Why not caring about the coming of spring? Perhaps this exchange happened in the depths of winter. Why would one not care about spring coming? Your strength is like the ever-flowing water. In, in revealing her the true person of no rank, she's now touching the eternal spring, the unborn Buddha mind.
in this um, in this volume, each um, each story is accompanied by a, a commentary by a different uh, Zen teacher, female Zen teacher, and this one is um, has a commentary by Kyo Ko, so Ko Kyo rather, Meg Porter Alexander, and. Um, Just a little bit of information about her. Um, she's a Zen, Soto Zen priest and teacher uh, in the everyday Zen commu community uh, led by Zoketsu Norman Fisher in the lineage of Suzuki Roshi. And she makes some, some good points in her commentary, so we'll just have a look at some of it. 35 years ago, when I put on my black robe and headed to the mountain monastery of Tassahara, stories like this, though always of men, were an entry to Zen practice for me. Stories made enlightenment something personal and embodied and radical. Most of us who came to Zen in the 1970s were young and sincere. We were desperate to be comfortable with ourselves and at the same time determined to make a difference in the world. As we were talking about yesterday, longing to find our true home, Long, longing to find some, some kind of refuge or, or sense of safety that's not dependent on conditions, that can't be taken away from us. We brought all forms of suffering with us to the cushion, to the embrace of Suzuki Roshi's teaching. And with practice, through practice, something in us was transformed. The intensity of the practice opened up our senses, allowed us to hold our difficulties and cultivate our strength. She, 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 note she doesn't say, got rid of all our difficulties. She said that the practice allowed us to hold our difficulties skillfully in relationship. We, we have difficulties as, as um, sentient beings. We have blind spots and, and um, different kinds of defilements that we have to work with. And, but what practice can do, what the training can do, is, is help us to hold those difficulties, to work with them, to work through them. And certainly practice, as, he, as she says, cultivates our strength. This was what you found. Strength like ever-flowing water. She says, when I read the story of you, I imagine a woman I might have known or been, someone needing to break open, someone prepared for the effort this would take, a woman whose heart-mind responded deeply to a generous teacher, a teacher whose vision of Sangha was wide and inclusive. In, in accepting a, uh, a woman, a laywoman, as a student, um, Master Lang Ye Hui Joe, was doing something unusual. 
someone needing to be to break open, someone prepared for the effort this would take. The effort and the patience is probably the most important quality um, that we need in order to sustain practice. There in, in the uh, Vajrayana tradition, there's um, a teaching about patience um, that we need three types of patience. The patience um, to bear the sufferings and difficulties that occur while we're uh, training ourselves. And this, what we're striving for um, in, in, the, in the Vajrayana tradition, they call the twofold goal. Buddhahood for one's own sake and the accomplishment of the welfare of others. And these two go hand in hand. So enormous patience is, is required to just work with the difficulties that arise. As we've been saying, they, we have to find a way to, to hold them skillfully. The second kind of patience is the ability to put up with injuries that others might afflict, inflict. We, how we react to, to troubles is, is really key in, in shaping us as we move through life. So finding a way to, to um, work with what, what comes up between us and others, injuries that might occur, with compassion for ourselves and others. Because this practice is about relationships. Now the third kind of patience is the ability to confront without fear or apprehension, the doctrine of emptiness and other profound teachings. These, these, these t teachings aren't easy. Emptiness, it feels like there's nothing to hold on to, and that is the case, there isn't. Sometimes they use the expression tolerance of emptiness to, 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 to face the groundlessness of, uh, of life. I think Chogram Chimpra said something like um, life is like uh, jumping out of an aeroplane. The bad news is you're not wearing your parachute. The good news is there's no ground. Another, another teaching that's about this, um, how to work with difficulties, um, and I don't, I don't have an attribution for this, but this teacher said, you must realize that the causal basis of heaven and hell is all formed by your own inherent mind. 
and in, in, as an antidote to that, he, he puts forward several uh, pointers for our, for our practice. You must keep this mind balanced and equanimous, without deluded ideas of self and other, without arbitrary loves and hates, without grasping or rejection, rejection, without notions of gain and loss. Go on gradually nurturing this for a long time, perhaps 20 or 30 years. Whether you encounter favorable or adverse conditions, do not retreat or regress. Then, when you come to the juncture between life and death, you will naturally be set free and not be afraid. As the saying goes, truth requires sudden awakening, but the phenomenal level calls for gradual cultivation. Truth requires sudden awakening because we're always connecting with what is immediately right here, not something somewhere else. We're just putting our hand down and touching the ground. It's revealed to us instantaneously, outside of, of time and space, really. We're not referring to them. But at the same time, there's this work we do that does require gradual cultivation, the, the work we do to learn how to be skillful with what arises in the mind. So it, both are necessary. And, and, and both take immense patience. We can be reassured by... Um, the, the teaching of the of the six realms that is referred to here as the basis of hell and heaven. There's the other other four realms on top of those two. That in in the way these are shown, these realms as a kind of schema for uh, samsara, is that in each of the realms there's a Buddha holding different objects in different realms. But the point is that entering into these realms painful or blissful, um, how they affect us depends on, on what we, how we respond to being there. It can be bondage or it can be awakening. We, and the way that we go on the path to awakening is, is through um, examining our, our maybe faulty perceptions and then if we understand them, then they just automatically turn into wisdom. Our, our faulty perceptions seen through are wisdom. Back to the commentary. The turning phrase or koan that you contemplated has a timeless ring, the true person of no rank. The practice of Zen includes living with a phrase, turning it over and over, not only during meditation but throughout the day's activities. I drew my koan for these early years of practice from the words of Tozan in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and I rephrased them in the feminine. The blue mountain is the mother of the white cloud. The white cloud is the daughter of the blue mountain. All day long they depend on each other without being dependent on each other. The white cloud is always the white cloud. The blue mountain is always the blue mountain. Completely independent, completely dependent. The blue mountain and the white cloud moved me to tears. Great 
solid blue mountains stretching up into the sky and the almost insubstantial white clouds clinging to its flanks. These koans push us beyond our ideas of self, the complicated emotional self that is faceted by roles and fractured with desire and grief. Fiercely explored, the world can shift and open into a pure and luminous reality right before our eyes. For you, it happened in the marketplace, in the middle of the workday. For me, it was in the pure presence of the Tassahara Garden at night, illumined by the moon, washed in the freshness of the mountain creek. Yu's teacher could see the person of no rank in her when she couldn't see it for herself, and by her efforts she, came, she became that person of no rank, that person whose sense of herself was deeply rooted and radically expansive. Not dependent on anything, Our teachers wait for us. I imagine Master Langye with the pride of a parent barely concealed, offering his respect to you by presenting the question to the assembly of monks and lay folks. Which one is the person of no rank? Perhaps he had done this before. Perhaps it was the tradition to acknowledge publicly these breakthrough encounters. I imagine you, trepidatious but fully ready, fully attuned, shouting out in response. Shouting! Why not? Her words, full of strength, full of flowing, of arms and heads, a sword that penetrates with ease the solid, the deep and the vast, like water springing from her own depths. Yu's imagery invokes the power of Manjushri's wisdom sword and Kuan Yin's elixir of compassion. She invokes the power of earth and water, feminine images of the deep and boundless source. And we'll just conclude with her final comments on this. Now, as I might enter my 80th decade, the story of Yu's enlightenment evokes something nuanced and personal. There is gratitude and tenderness for the ordinary, as well as the difficult and inspired. The Tassahara Creek still sings in the background for me, although my life is more like the water I live by now, the Russian River, running wider, smoother, deeper, before emptying into the Pacific Ocean. Step by step by step, for each of us, this is only the only way. In other words, to return to the ocean, to flow back into the great ocean. I keep in view these words I found in a hospital's simple meditation room while working as a chaplain. And this is, these words are from Daniel Berrigan. These many beautiful days cannot be lived again, but they are compounded in my own flesh and spirit, and I take them in full measure toward whatever lives ahead. These seven beautiful days cannot be lived again. What have we learnt that we can take with us or even more 
importantly, what can we leave behind? We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow 